1987, with the fall and ouster of Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos, the people of the Philippines finally had the opportunity to come to grips with the extent of the corruption of his rule. Um, his palace, his palace is filled with the plunder of a whole nation. Uh, billions in the end that it was totaled at, at being. Uh, over the coming weeks, as opportunity allowed, the Filipino people began to uh, come into and, and file through the palace and uh, the houses and such and to, to peer into just what it was that had been going on for those number of years. And the interesting thing is that they did not storm the palace to uh, loot and pillage it. But there was a completely different dynamic going on there. They filed through to observe, and witnesses said it took on something of, of, of a hushed silence of, of, of observing this opulent wealth, almost in a spirit of reverence for what it was that they were seeing. Now think about that just for a minute. This is the very wealth that uh, had corrupted their ruler, and brought his reign to its knees. And yet, they were filing through, fascinated and in awe of what it was that was before them. Which I think speaks to the power of wealth and the potential of the power of wealth over our hearts. Jesus, knowing that about our hearts, speaks directly to this without mincing any words, without mincing any words at all. He speaks very clearly to this. Matthew chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to, to turn there now with me. This is uh, part of an ongoing series through the Gospel of Matthew. We are lingering as we're moving through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we are in Matthew 6. That's the first of the books of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, Mark, Luke John. Uh, we are in Matthew, Matthew 6. I'm reading in verses 19 through 24. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. Hear now God's word. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Would you pray with me? Lord, from Psalm 119, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life. In your ways. Lord, that is our prayer here this morning. 
And we can hear even in the strength of your words here in Matthew 6 that there is a spell from which many, if not all of us, need to be awakened from. The lure, the attraction, the bewitching nature of money and wealth. And we ask that you would please uh, be merciful to us and help us hear. Help us hear what you are saying. Truly, truly, as has been said so many times in years past, speak, O Lord, for we are listening. Oh, but may we listen. In your name we pray. Amen. Some of you may have heard that Jan Crouch died this past week. Uh, Jan and her husband, uh, Paul Crouch, co-founded Trinity Broadcasting Network, TBN, back in the 1970s. That is the largest Christian cable network in North America. Uh, and uh, it is known for, among many other things, many of its talk shows that it has uh, produced and airs over the course of the years and throughout this country and been throughout this world. Actually, and of course, many televangelists uh, that are rather well-known uh, for good and less than good reasons that whose shows and sermons and teachings are also uh, aired there on TBN. But TBN is not just known for their size and the extent of their broadcasting range. Uh, TBN and the Crouches as well are also known and have become increasingly so known for their scandals and the corruption of that ministry. Uh, accusations of sexual abuse and cover-ups, stuff that's in the courts right now, uh, financial mismanagement and curious accounting procedures, of... Um, continual purchases and odd labeling of those purchases that really are nothing but ostentatious luxuries that all any of us would not even think of ever being able to afford, much less uh, a ministry such as that. All of which has left the Crouches and TBN as a whole with what I'll say at best is a dubious reputation and a clouded legacy. And in fact, bears out the Apostle Paul's warning in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, you don't have to turn there. I'm just reading one verse. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, where the Apostle Paul writes, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Jesus bids us to follow him. That is to say, he has made us as his followers, as his people, as his disciples, saints. And we know that's a word that you, know, you might think is a Ro just a Roman Catholic thing, but it's actually not. It's a, it literally just means those who are set apart. Set apart for Jesus' purposes in this world. That, that, and that would be us, that would, if we are in fact his followers. We are called to be in this world, but not of this world. We are to be a people who are different, a people who are living in a distinct way. And as we have been seeing just over the last several weeks in, in the course of looking at Matthew chapter 6, we are to be a people different and distinct from the hypocrisy of the religious. That's what we've been looking at, chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. And now we see something else in verses 19 through 24. We are to be a people different and distinct from not just the hypocrisy of the religious, but the materialism of the irreligious. Or if I can put it simply... We are not to live for either status or stuff. Jesus has called us to follow Him. And that demands a different approach 
to all of life. Nothing left out. Nothing. He, it, he calls us to follow Him, and that demands a different approach to all of that, which, by the way, of course, includes, and you see that here in our text, a different approach to money and wealth. To money and wealth. Now, what would that mean? What would that strong statement mean? How does that play itself out? Well, Jesus then presents us in this text with, with a way to roll that out and gives us understanding of what it means by forcing choices before us. Three, actually. A choice between two treasures, a choice between two visions, that is, way of seeing, and a choice between two masters. He forces the choice to get this across to us. Knowing the stakes and loving us as he does, he forces the choice. So let's look at these in turn. First, a choice between two treasures, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also, Jesus is saying we must choose between these two treasures. Now, what he's doing here is setting before us you know, the choice between the treasures on earth, treasures in heaven, treasures on earth. What, what does he say? Well, what are they? He, he just lays out what were the luxuries, what were the riches, what the wealthy people would invest their money into in the ancient world. Clothing and precious metals. metals. And then he also lays out how those things could be lost and were easily lost because they are so weak and corruptible. And he might say to us, well, you know, in terms of your, think in terms of your houses, or your trust funds, or your electronic gizmos, or your cars. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on, on earth in, in that sense. And he says, don't hoard those things. And by the way, he's not speaking in any way against savings, or investing, or wise financial planning. That's not, in fact, he commends those things. He's talking about hoarding. He's talking about it's, it's, it's different, qualitatively different. He's talking about a, a life given to the selfish accumulation of stuff and more stuff and an insatiable desire for more stuff. That's what he's speaking of here. So that's what it is to live for the treasures on earth. But he says, contrary to that, we're to live for treasures in heaven. What would that be? To live for, to make the priority of what we're about, God's causes and the good of other people. God's causes and the good of, of other people. Those things last. The, the investments in those things are safe and secure and cannot wear out, cannot be taken away because, of course, those treasures are where? Not on earth, but in heaven. And so they're safe. They're, they're secure. And so he says, invest in those things. Then he gives us another reason, verse 21, to just drive this further home. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The idea being that our hearts are, they follow what we invest in. There's a bond, there's a tie between what we invest in and our hearts. And so he's prompting, he's forcing this question. What is your heart tied to? What is your heart tied to? Is it tied to something that will last or there will just perish and fade. What is your heart tied to? Forcing the choice between these two treasures. So, of course, we ought to ask budgeting-wise, but the whole of life budgeting. You know, what if, if, if a, um, an accountant was called in or if an appraisal of some kind uh, was called in and, and we were forced to 
to lay out, you know, our giving records. What does it say? But not just in terms of our money, but in terms of our time, in terms of our energy. To lay up treasures in heaven is to invest ourselves in that which gives itself towards faith and hope and love in our lives and in the lives of others. To give ourselves, to live for, to pursue reconciliation. Can I give a shout out to Relational Wisdom 360 again? To give ourselves towards reconciliation between other people and with other people. Towards whatever it is that lends itself towards faith and hope and love. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Those things. Those things last. You know why those things last? Because people last. People matter. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's calling for us to follow Him, which then demands a completely different approach to money and wealth. Which then leads to the second thing, the second contrast, the second choice, and that's in verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Again, this choice is being forced upon us between these two ways of seeing, these two, these two visions, if you will. Now, he uses this imagery. It's, it's not intended, of course, to be an ophthalmologist ophthalmologically precise you know, examination of what the, how the eye works. But in the ancient world, the eye was understood to be something like a window. The eye is what lets light into the body. And so, if you will, the light illumines the body. And so if you spin that out, you realize, well, then if the, if the, the eye is bad then the whole body is going to be filled with darkness and it won't know how to find its way. But conversely, if the eye is good, if it is clear, then it will be the body then will be filled with light and, the, and we will then be able to walk in on our way. Well, and by the way, I should point out that the, the way the eye functions here and is spoken of here is also akin to the heart. The heart being what the Bible speaks of regarding our minds, our wills, our affections, our conscience, such that oftentimes you, you know, it's, it's pretty much the same thing to say, well, her eye is fixed on that, or his mind, his heart is set on that. It means pretty much the same thing, what Jesus is speaking of here with the, the eye. Well, the role of the eye plays a critical well, role in the course of our lives, or the course our lives take, I should put it that way. Uh, there's a word play here. Uh, that you can't quite see in the English, but it's there in, in the Greek because the word healthy uh, or good can also mean generous. And the word for bad can mean evil or stingy. And so you could really paraphrase it like this. If your eye is healthy and generous, your life will be filled with light. But if your eye is evil, bad, or stingy, your whole life will be filled with darkness. The idea here being that how we see drives what we do, where we go, how we live. So how do we see? What's the grid? That's what Jesus is asking. It's the choice that he's thrusting here before. So, so if, if you're asking yourself even this morning, or if you ever have, what is it about me that makes me spend and save the way that I do? 
Why is it that, you know, really, when you, when you take a look and appraisal at my life, it looks like I live for material things, as though material things were all that were. You know why? Because material things are what you set your eye on and given your heart towards. It's set the course of your life, how you see. And again, Jesus is forcing this choice. He says, if you're to follow me, it demands a completely different approach to money and wealth. Thirdly, two masters. Two masters, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So again, a choice is set before us here between two masters. Now, please understand, the reality of slavery has to be reckoned with here. Jesus is not talking about employers. He's not allowing us to say, well, you know, I'm a full-time fisherman. You're thinking in terms of the context. I'm a full-time fisherman, but in my spare time, I have this other gig going on with as a craftsman, as a farmer. Uh-uh-uh-uh. You can have lots of employers. Some of us have worked and maybe are working more than one job. And if you can finagle the schedule, that's fine. Jesus is not talking about employers. He's talking about masters. And you can only have one master. He's speaking of slavery. He's speaking here of a lack of control, or your control, someone else's control, someone else's ownership of you, your master. Your master. So it's the reality of slavery and a question of loyalty. And you see that in, in the words used. I mean, really, there can only be one ultimate place we can put our loyalty and our trust. He says, you know, you will either uh, hate or love the other or delight in or despise the other. There's an exclusiveness here to it. Exclusive rights and claims. One master over us. We can be owned by and loyal to but one. But one is what Jesus is saying here. And so therefore we can only serve one. And it's either going to be mammon, which by the way comes from a Hebrew uh, Aramaic word which means that which we trust in. It's either going to be mammon or God. And it cannot be both. It can only be one or the other. And Jesus says you must choose. You must choose. Now, we of course resist that. We don't like that choice. We want to believe that we can try and go along through life as though we can actually serve two masters. So, we will serve God with our lips and money with our lives. Or we'll serve God on Sunday and wealth and material possessions the other six days of the week. We want to believe that in the pantheon, the temple of our hearts, we can have a little totem pole called wealth and money just with a little corner piece over on the side. And God says, no! If you're going to trust me, if you're going to serve me, it's an all-or-nothing proposition. Which means to give money and wealth any part is to give it all you've then given him nothing because it's an all-or-nothing proposition. Now, then again, but then we might push back and say, but I would never do that. I, I, would, I would never do that. Well, think with me, my friend. How do you respond 
when your money and wealth and source thereof is threatened? How do you respond? Think of how hostile you get, how angry how you get, how threatened you feel. And ask yourself in that moment, whom or what am I really trusting? Who is my master? Who am I serving? These kind of questions we have to ask. Jesus is calling us to follow Him, and that should make a difference in how we approach money and wealth. Now what's interesting, just wrapping this up real quickly, is that Jesus, you may not know this, this is actually kind of surprising. Jesus taught more on money and wealth than on any other social issue. More than on marriage, more than on politics, more than on the the end times, more than on sex or power. Now why do you think that is? I would argue for two reasons. One, because of the goodness of gifts. The goodness of the gifts in this world. Granted, as broken and fractured and fallen as this world is, it is still nonetheless filled with God's good gifts to us. And money and wealth are part of those gifts. That's part of it. This attraction, but by the same token, it's not just the goodness of the gifts, it's the brokenness and fallenness of our hearts. Such that, however much we may are made in God's image, we are still broken and fallen, so we so easily settle for so much less than we were made for. We find meaning in the enjoyment of the things that he gives to us instead of relationship with the giver of the things. The things that he means to give us that would point us in thanks and gratitude towards him, we take hold of and trust in. All then putting us in a trajectory of destruction and disintegration in this life that will carry itself out for eternity. And so Jesus forces the choice between two treasures, two visions, and two masters. Now, we might then want to say, that's narrow. That's exclusive, which of course is the unpardonable sin in our day and age, to be narrow and exclusive. Well, is Jesus being narrow and exclusive? Well, I guess in a way he is, isn't he? But isn't it the same kind of narrowness and exclusiveness that we would say to a friend who's about to walk off a cliff? Don't. Because it's a matter of either life or death. Isn't this narrowness or exclusiveness in Jesus born out of his knowing the temptation and the reality of it and the danger and the pull and the attraction and what it can do and the stakes involved and his love for us? Yes. You can call him narrow and exclusive in that sense because of the stakes and because of his love. His love for you. His love for us. In that, he forces the choice. Let's pray. Lord, please help us. We need to be awakened. It's as though we have been brought under a spell. Um, in our busyness and activities and in all that entertains us, we so rarely ever stop to reflect on these things.
and we need to. You're making it very clear there's not a third option. There's no fence sitting here. It's a choice between one of two treasures, one of two visions, and one of two masters. What it ultimately comes down to. We ask that you'd help us to hear your words, to hear your heart. Give us life, we pray. Set us free that we would follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. If I may ask my fellow elders to join me up here, we are now going to continuing in our worship in the celebration of the Supper. Now you may, may be wondering, what in the world is the connection between what we've been reading here in Matthew 6 and the, this table here? And I want to tell you, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul writes these words, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, Jesus took an inventory of all that was rightfully his, and he left it, and he came. And he lived in our place and he died in our place because despite how glorious that inventory of what was his before all eternity, he said, that is not worth them. And so he came for us. So, why then? Why then would we ever think of giving of our treasure, whatever form that is, to him? Because, my friends, he has made it abundantly clear that he treasures you. He has given his all, all he has for you. You are his treasure. We are his treasure. We are freed to then give in response to that. That's what this is for, coming down to the table. The, the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup that, that in, in our, before our minds and before our imaginations with the, the metaphor, if you will, in this and the eating and in the drinking and, and that our, the affections of our hearts would be rekindled in ways that only the Spirit can do in, in this His sacrament. Uh, Paul uh, alludes to all of this here in, in 1 Corinthians. I read from 2 Corinthians a moment ago, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the flow of a much longer argument that he's making here to this problematic church there in, in Corinth, he, Paul writes, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Paul goes on, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So, Here's what I know. The gospel is the news that we all need. The gospel is the news that, that we all need. Now, I don't know everything about you, but I can say this much. If you're here this morning, and, and that's not really where you are, you're intrigued you know, by some of the things that you've heard and maybe even the creed that we read, but, 
when uh, Roger was saying, you know, if this is, this is where your heart is, then please recite it. But if it's not, then of course by implication you feel free just to listen. But if you, it's not really where you are, then here's what I can say for sure. Um, you're here for a reason this morning. But it's not to take this yet. It's, I would add, though, it's to consider what's getting in the way if you're being, from your heart being in a place where you can do that. If you're a Christian here this morning, professing at least with your lips faith in, in Christ, but you know yourself to be in willful rebellion against the Lord, uh, you know that, that it is a, a um, terrible inconsistency some besetting sin in your life that you are not willing to let go. I can say this also about why you're here this morning. To repent. That's his call to you, to turn from that folly and to turn back to him, that you might then be ready and prepared in your heart to take of the bread and the cup. Now, if you're here this morning as a Christian and you know Okay, you don't fully comprehend all the mysteries of this faith that we believe, but you do believe. And you know your life to be anything but perfect. But you're trying. And you're leaning with all you are into Jesus. You know you're here for a reason too. That your mind would be reminded and that your heart would be refreshed. Oh my goodness, my friend, take and eat. Take and drink. Lean into him. Feed upon him. Find your life anew in him and in the gospel this morning. That's why you're here. That's why he's brought you here, us here this, this morning. So first what we're going to do is distribute the bread. When you receive that, please go ahead and take it and eat it. When you get the cup after that, we would ask that you hold that. We're going to do that together. There are some uh, passages there in your bulletin. There's you open it up on the right-hand side. Uh, certainly, if you want to meditate over that uh, over the coming minutes, we'd certainly encourage you to do that. There's actually a prayer there in there as, as well that you may want to consider uh, looking over and perhaps even praying through if it's appropriate for you. Let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your mercy to us. I thank you. you. You know our needs. You've made us as embodied spirits. Uh, we are uh, creatures who need perpetual reminding and refreshing. We get weary in body and in spirit, and we need to have this time, and thank you for it. In our regular measures, thank you for this time. And we ask that you would speak to our hearts, for as surely as we are uh, taking of this bread and tearing it with our teeth, you were torn for us. As surely as we are taking this cup to our lips and drinking it, your blood was poured out as surely in its time and space there at Golgotha, just outside the city walls some years ago, for us. In your name we pray. Amen.